previously on Popping Collars. Okay, welcome to Popping Collars. Yay! <laughs> uh, <laughs> welcome to Popping Collars. Welcome to Popping Collars. Welcome to Popping Collars. Welcome to Popping Collars. Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and popular culture. My name is Greg Knight. I'm your host, Liz Easton. My name is Ricardo Avila. My name is Betsy Gonzalez. Finally, uh, we have a special guest with us, the editor-in-chief, the J. Jonah Jameson, as it were, of the Episcopal <laughs> Cafe. It's John White. Welcome, John. Thanks, Greg. She is a movie producer on projects like Wits, the Jane Austen Book Club, Albert Knobs, and the movie we're talking about today. It's Julie Lynn. Welcome to our show, Julie. Thank you for having me. Joining me live and in person from Omaha, Nebraska, Scott Barker. Who are you and what do you do? Right on. Hi, Liz. Scott Barker. I'm the Bishop of the Diocese of Nebraska. It's Trip Hudgens. Our two special guests today, Justin Skizek and Patrick Gray, decided to go on pilgrimage together to Spain and to the Camino. The host of the Priest Pulse podcast from Drexel Hill, Pennsylvania, it's Benjamin Gildas. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hey, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Jordan Haney Ware. I podcast with my partner, Lucinda Hode, called Two Feminists Annotate the Bible, and we are going through the Bible cover to cover, story by story. Patricia Lyons. The chief film critic for The Washington Post. It's Ann Hornaday, everybody. Nancy Frausto. The author of the Krusty Old Dean blog, Tom Ferguson. Hello, Tom. Hey there. Great to be with you all. The host of the Homebrew Christianity podcast, Trip Fuller. Hello, Trip. Oh, excited to be here. The esteemed and reverend Paul Fromberg. Someone with their very own IMDb page, for God's sake. It's Stephen Cohn from Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, thanks for having me. So Liz and I are joined today by our special guest, uh, the Reverend Becca Stevens, who is joining us from Nashville. And he is also the co-host of the excellent movie review podcast, Film Spotting. It's Josh Larson, everybody. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hi, thank you so much for having me. The godfather of popping collars, Richard Lindsay. <laughs> Welcome back, Richard. Uh, nice to be back uh, on this, the day of my daughter's wedding. You know, it's, it's the anxiety over lack of knowledge. So mm-hmm. what do I do? I'm going to make fun of them. Oh. You know, I'm just going to kind of, I, I'm unfamiliar. So I'm going to, you know, cast some stones and kind of, ah, ha, ha, who really takes that seriously? Because I don't know enough about it, right? Or like, so. I'm a priest and I read books. Oh, God. You don't read enough books. Why do you fall? You should be reading a book. I don't do great with church language a lot of times, but in pop culture language, we call keeping it real. Like that's... Oh, that's in the that's, <laughs> Some people would like bristle to hear you talk about the Bible in a sort of mythological, because that means unicorns and pegasuses and, you know, whatever, you know, the, no, 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 that's not what we're talking about. That inside every mythology, there's truth. Everyone starts quoting Major Tom, and it's it's every line from a song. It becomes this incredibly meaningful way to describe the nature of life and our place in it. Um, the cosmos gets shifted. You know, planet Earth is blue, and there's nothing I can do. I mean, this becomes an incredibly powerful theological statement. Or, but can I say a word about my guy for really quickly? Oh, yeah. sure. Okay, I didn't really know this was happening until you and I talked on the phone the other day. <laughs> but I just want to shout out that MacGyver was like my legit first crush. Really? Yeah, like not even first like 
but first, like, I don't know why I feel this way. Like, that kind of crush. Like, I had a real crush on MacGyver. Was it the mullet? Was it the... He was a little rugged. Like, he... <laughs> I think he was a little rugged, and I like that. Still do. And he was super nice. He was always, Part like, helping people. Part of yeah. <laughs> But that, that longing to be a part of something larger, I think, drives a lot of the love for Harry Potter. Because that's also just a very engaging narrative. But I just think that we're in a cultural moment right now where people have don't want to be anybody's fool. But as a result, they're then sort of nobody's follower. And they realize, wait, you got to be a little foolish to do a little following. But the scene itself, it's six minutes of just watching her eat that disgusting pie. And the ghost is up in the corner just watching her. Um, and then she runs to the bathroom and throws up and you feel like throwing up with her because it has just been six minutes of your life that you're never going to get back. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm guessing that was the end of the part you did not like. Like Cinderella's a romance and there's struggle in there. True. And I guess it's a happy ending. She gets accepted <laughs> into patriarchy. Besides that, it's a great movie. <laughs> That's right. Who didn't want that? That's Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> that's that's Buckaroo Banzai. That's Winnie the Pooh. Wherever that's you go, there you are. <laughs> maybe maybe Buckaroo Banzai and Winnie the Pooh are the same person. <laughs> Have you ever seen them in the same room together? No. Welcome to Poppin' Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and pop culture. My name is Greg Knight. I am the director of Children and Youth Ministries at the Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. And I am your host for this end of the season, best of episode. This is episode 100 of Popping Collars. Thank you so much for listening to our silly little podcast for the past four years, and especially this past season where we explored themes of community, pop culture representation, and reconciliation. Big thank you goes out to my co-hosts, Betsy Gonzalez, Liz Easton, Ricardo Avila. They are the greatest, and this show would be nothing without them. Thank you, guys. And of course, thank you so much to all our guests this season, both new and returning, who helped us make sense of the world around us. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a look back at season four of Popping Collars. I think uh, an interesting question in my mind is, as we uh, as we live with these people, will they continue to be you know to be that open? Will that just be a window in their life, or will we know their life for a long time? There's a relationship mm. that you kind of have with this media in a way that you don't with things like TV or movie. Like I don't have a relationship with Brad Pitt. Like you know, I, I may like think about <laughs> you. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't really. Yeah. But like there's something about YouTube, the fact that it's so like it's such a user interface. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you 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 find exactly. your media, you find your hook. Here's this girl who's making cruddy robots, yeah. and then all of a sudden a bunch of people start following her, and you know, life still happens to her. It's a TV exactly. show to you, 
right? Yep. But it's her life. Yeah, and there's an, there's the there's both the the real family and the adopted family in a lot of his things too. I think it's an enlarged sense of family, uh, or who can who can actually fill that role in a lot of his movies, and and it's usually united around an enthusiasm towards a shared common goal. At least in Rushmore, that's definitely the case. And actually, he ends his his films with the the slow mo of people together. Yeah, no, I would agree in that. And I'm, and I'm a real, now that you name it in that way, I'm a real sucker for a group of people working together to try to do something. I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the, <laughs> I defend the movie Twister on this podcast. <laughs> a group of people working together under duress. Who do you become? The guy of the tornado. Right. So I think he, he, oh my God. He does that really well, and I. That might be the first link of Wes Anderson and, <laughs> and Twister. And oh, if, if only Wes Anderson had directed Twister. Oh, <laughs> that was amazing! Yeah. And you just give Philip Seymour Hoffman like dead panning to the camera. Oh my god! I think it. Gosh. I think it's enough. Yes, fun. yes, a, a band of climate scientists. That sounds in Kansas. Um, there are times where I don't have the words and then the liturgy is there uh, to provide them and, and to give me that, that context and to get me started. And that's really partly how the idea for the book came about is I realized that I would be watching certain films and it would be serving not the formative purpose as much as the liturgical one of providing me the lament that I didn't maybe have the words for about that particular subject that the film was addressing. Um, or maybe it was praise, you know, films that are, especially films that are anchored around gorgeous natural beauty so often will function for me as giving me the words of praise. Like I'm experiencing that as I'm watching the film, the way I would reading, you know, a psalm together with um, others in church. And so it was, it was having those shared experiences side by side that allowed me to see that the, these were really prayerful movie going experiences that I was having. Yeah. We'll have, you know, some folks that we work with, like recommend movies that we should check out. And I'll be like, oh god, oh, it's too, it's too on the nose. It's too yeah. on the nose. I like right. the hunting and the finding, and the seeking of the voice in there, and how it's speaking to me, and that it can speak to me at one place when I might have watched that movie originally in the theater, and then you watch it again with your kid, or you watch it again in another context, and you're like, oh my lord, there's this whole other thing in there that I didn't even know was there. Oh, I love, I love that phrase, the hunting and finding and seeking of the voice. Yeah, that's that's. I'm going to use that when I talk to our writers at Think Christian, because that's what we're trying to do. You know, it's like whatever piece of culture you're considering, not that you'll find it in every piece of culture, but to be open to it um, and to seek that out. This this conversation (laughs) surfacing a question I've been wondering about for, for a bunch of years. And I, it's an art question, but it's also a liturgy question, which is what is what is the the boundary between that which is predictable and therefore tedious 
and that which is sort of has a beautiful rhythm to it that you can just fall into again and 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 again. I, I I know I know that you know for some folks a complaint about the Episcopal Church or another liturgical church is that it's the same thing over and over. And for for others of us, uh, the part of the part of the joy, part of part of what makes it uh, so integral to our practice is it's the same thing over and over that there's there's this rhythm that you that you get into and you know i I, you've mentioned indiana jones i I watched that film i don't know i hope it's not i hope it's not bad form to liken that to liturgy maybe i'm getting into trouble here but i I watch i I find some you know i find this this it's in a spielberg lucas zone so i think it's safe right right that's that's borderline canon yeah uh because i (laughs) Uh, the predictability is part of what I'm drawn to, but other times you, you see a film and like it's a total knock on the movie. Like, oh, I saw the ending coming 45 minutes away. Like, I knew he was the bad guy the first time he walked in, and that was really that was dissatisfying. And I I don't know that I can quantify why that border exists, but but I can I I sure experience it really differently. Spoken like someone who's messed around with liturgy at a church. Because <laughs> um, then once you mess around with it a little bit, you try to offer a little variety and, hey, let's, let's do this. Like big, like push, like let's do the modern language version of the Lord's Prayer. And people oh, are like, God. what is going on? Why? This, what are you doing? This isn't the real Lord's Prayer. This is the fake one. Right? <laughs> One of the things that's really beautiful about the ensemble nature of West Wing is that it shows how all of these people's gifts come together to help lift up a leader and help bring out a leader's gifts for the greater good. It's really beautiful reflection on leadership and on faith. Mm-hmm. But what What's happening with Josh and Donna in the episode? <laughs> you know, it's hard when we face our weaknesses because they remind us that we're human. But you're right. I mean, he is, I mean, he's, he's almost a superhero character, right? Yep. He doesn't have um, too many flaws until you start to pull it apart a little bit. And he's broken. He's so, he's just, he's just doing the best he can do. And that's what we're all doing. And, and instead of trying to put ourselves or trying to insist that someone else get on a pedestal for us, how about we just realize we're all just down here doing the best we can and we're all beloved and we're all broken and he's just as scared as anyone else working in schools i think seminary preps you for kind of going out and being the pastoral superhero and i got my cape on and i'm going to come in i'm going to save this community and then I started working in schools and I'm like, oh, holy moly, everybody here is doing this work. Everybody here is doing this. So I actually, I've got to take care of the caretakers. Right. Everyone's around here. It, it, yes. Well, yeah. Yes. So I'm checking in with people like Steve, with people around who kind of, and, you know, everybody has their own pockets and people that they're looking after, especially when we all live together. I mean, essentially Steve and I live at Friday Night Lights in, in, in at least in terms of the amount of hormones present. <laughs> oh, there's no, question, there's no question about that. Yeah. <laughs> as, as I listen to you all talk about the, the pastoral side of things, I think that certainly in 
the clergy and among teachers and coaches, there are those people who have that X factor, that charisma right out of the gate where kids or members of the congregation naturally gravitate toward and connect to them. But then the other piece of it that I've discovered over time is that really when it comes to making those connections, it's that idea of slow and steady, you know, I don't want to say wins the race because that sounds like it's a competition and that's not what I mean, but just that idea of it's that ability to listen and then follow up later, you know, whether, you know, if you didn't feel like you had much to offer in the moment, just that idea of coming back around to say, Hey, I'm so glad you spoke to me earlier. I just want to let you know if you want to chat tomorrow, I'm available or, you know, come find me, come see me anytime. But just that being present for those who seek you out. Well, I have kind of a superhero question. Oh, she play with your hair. She's playing with her hair. <laughs> I have a superhero question, guys. <laughs> Talk about it. <laughs> so I was really moved at both of the times where when he had to fight to be the king and they gave him the elixir that stripped away his Black Panther powers so that he could just be a man. And that felt significant to me, but I don't know enough. Like, I don't really know enough about other superheroes, if that was significant or not. And I think it's a, it's a fairly typical trope in, with superheroes uh, to say that the, the, the powers do not make the hero. The person makes the hero. Um, if you strip off the powers, that you still have the person. And that's, critical is that anybody can wear um iron man suit but not anybody can be iron man there's only one black panther even though anybody can can drink the the, the, the syrup i have i have kind of a theory and like some of this fits into different parts of like what we discussed so far so like there's the question of the sun's how well did they get along with their dad? There's the question of the people who got along with him or whatever. And and like what everybody kept saying the same over and over again was this is not a persona he puts on on television. That he's this is something this is the way he is in everyday life. And you would see him doing interviews with adults and he would talk to them like children. Yeah. You know, he would talk to them with this extreme earnestness, kind of humorlessness. And uh, they made you uncomfortable, really. Like you would thought he would have like just been able to sit back and just kind of laugh at himself, but he didn't seem to be capable of doing that. And uh, one of the words that one of the people in the film used was eccentricity. And I wonder if he had a, a kind of a weird disorder, but that that disorder was towards a kind of preternatural kindness towards children. Oh, because, like, if you can have, you know, if you can have narcissistic personality disorder like our president, you know, is it possible that you could have kind of a weird personality quirk that actually makes you extremely empathetic? And somebody who sees the kind of the kind of broken child in everybody. Well, there's a couple things to note. So one is that audiences do actually respond well when people mess up. Mm. Um, oh. So they say that, like, so first of all, you don't see when someone messes up, so they edit that out. Oh, so really? Just like this yeah. podcast, just yeah. like... <laughs> uh, no, no. Thank you, Greg. 
future career with TED Talk. We're, we're edited? <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, so if you if you like totally lose it, people will applaud. Like the audience oh. will applaud during that awkward time. Um, they say that a lot of times TED audiences are super, super mm. like encouraging. And then they like they root for you even more. So in the training, like when we were doing like really quick day before kind of training, like exercises to get you to connect and be in your body and like uh, project and be natural. They, they said something like, you know, just just so you know, like people end up really being on your audiences really end up being on speaker sides when they mess up at some point. But they're like, that doesn't mean you should try to mess up so that people. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if, if, if you like I, I, I lost the line. Um, you don't know it because I just like kind of recollected and then repeated the, the line. But then I knew that they were going to edit that out. I think that there's a difference between what a blockbuster is doing or is trying to do now than what Colin was saying when they were first created. You know, they're a happy accident when they're first created, but now you have this cathartic moment, you have this experience, and it's so linked to the things that you value and the things that you like and the things that you enjoy and who you are that when that property comes up again you're invested in a way that if it doesn't meet your expectations <laughs> you feel personally offended <laughs> and like that's and that's what it seems like a lot of blockbusters do now is get people really excited to go see them make them disappointed after it's over but then get them really excited to come back for the next one Well, and if it does meet your expectations, then it's instantly nostalgic, even if you don't have a personal relationship to that story, because you're immediately drawn back into all the other times that you had that same experience. I don't know if it's intentional, but some of the sort of self-perpetuating generation of this is the controversy that that generates. I mean, you know, Last Jedi came out and the fans were split on it. Half of them thought it was brilliant. Half of them were really disappointed in it. But that generated all kinds of blogs and posts and arguments. And and now, you know, everybody's going to go see what whatever the next one is because we have to figure out who's right. Yeah. Like a good concert is kind of like going to church a little bit, you know. It's like that. that was actually one of the things I was uh, I was watching an interview with him, and he talked about because he has these stunningly long concerts, you know, four hours, three or three and a half hours, four hours, you know, always trying to. And one of the things that he spoke about in an interview is he's always chasing that moment that that everything else falls away, and he's just sort of he's home. He says he's connected to the people around him. They're sharing something. Like you say, this is his church. He goes there and it's like, this is communion. This is, this is, this is the union of the body. Yeah. I've heard him also describe the concert experience as very much like a religious experience, like the mystery, the communion, like you mentioned the word magic to describe that thing that happens when that connection is made and like not in a, hocus pocus type of magic but like truly magical in the same way that when you have authentic spiritual connection there's a thing other than you 
And it's his Jersey stubbornness. He's going to keep playing until he finds yeah, exactly. it. <laughs> no, no, no. We're not going home yet. I know it's 1 a.m. We're not going home until we get there. I think of the lyric in Thunder Road. Um, I know you're searching for a savior to rise from these streets. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I'm no hero. That's understood. All the redemption I can offer a girl is beneath this dirty hood. With a chance to make it good somehow, what else can we do now but roll down the window and let the wind blow back your hair? So he's got that idea of like we, like you were saying, Marshall, we're going to keep going at this until we find the redemption or we find the, the moment of transcendence or, you know, life all around us is difficult and hard and um, disappointing and tragic. But, you know, he's got that romantic thing. I, I call it romantic that won't give up. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that. It seems interesting to me that country music and sort of American Protestantism, you know, revival based kind of evangelical Protestantism, both have their roots in the South. And like you had, you know, the, the same, there was the same sort of like bed of creation that bore these two things. And there probably is like, if I knew more about the history of music, there probably is a direct connection between the development of country music and like revival style Christian worship. But um, it just seems interesting to me that like, there's two, there seems to be two sides of country music. There's like the bar room and the church house, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and the, and the both of the, they're coming from the same place culturally. And like I was thinking earlier today how Flannery O'Connor referred to the South as Christ haunted. And sometimes it feels like like country music is also a little bit Christ haunted, even if not explicitly. But there is a sort of religiosity in that music. So so I go I go to this youth hostel and you know I met a few people and we traveled a little bit together, but I remember one night, one guy pulls out a guitar and we all just kind of started singing songs and they knew some English songs and they sang Imagine by John Lennon. And then they started playing, they're like, oh, do you know this song? And they started playing Take Me Home Country Roads by John Denver. (laughs) And I started singing it. I started You burst into tears, yeah. (laughs) No! It was so embarrassing. (laughs) I mean, come on, these foreigners. I'm like, take me home. Slight accent. They're like, oh, what's wrong? I'm just so miserable. Tomorrow up on the B and O, from Baltimore to Washington and Washington to Yonkers, Yonkers up to Albany, from Albany to Troy. This relationship between the church and the family, and the divine right of ruling, and what that can kind of look like in that time period. And I'm wondering whether any of the episodes are going to talk some about that angle of it. You know, I'm, I, we, we've, we've hit on this, but this reminds me of a Faulkner line. Mm-hmm. We mythologize the past and we do a lot with the past. And mm-hmm. um, in Requiem for the Nun, uh, he writes the line, the past is never dead. It's not even past. Mm-hmm. And this idea that we, we never shake it. But what we do is we adapt it or we mythologize it or we change it or we we keep reliving it in our own ways or, or whatever the case. But a um, hundred years, as you say, is no distance whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's within photography. I mean, if you think about it as a, as a documentary art form, photography existed, which is one of the things we know about that, that family is that they're, they're photographed. And so we know them as people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it makes it really present. We can see the people who died. Um, we can see how they look like the English Royals, which we identify with. So there's, so there's this weird sort of they're, they're exotic, but yet they're one of us. And then maybe are they still with us? And, and the idea of the, the continuous thread through history, I mean, how it comes down. Um, do we inherit it? What do we do with it? Cause it's not dead. It's not gone. And how does that past still inform us? Um, we're, 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 we're still fighting these battles. The rich are still getting rich. The poor are still getting poorer. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of the, the middle class that they reference, you know, what's happening to the middle class in episode one yes. doesn't even exist because none of this is new. None of this is new. There was, um, there's a lot of, lot of commentary in the, uh, kind of, black social media world about um, this. I mean, some people are just like, we don't care about this. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had um, royalty in, Af- you know, in, in Africa for, since the beginning of time. You know, what, what is new about this kind of thing, which I appreciate too. One of the things that I really appreciated about this uh, and read about online was this idea that, that this was Megan's opportunity to show the world that, yes, she actually is black. Yeah. <laughs> and, I was, and, you know, there was her, there was her mom. Yep. And when oh. I saw her mom come out of the car, and that, and and I mean, I knew her mom was was black, but that when I saw her mom come out of the car, I was like, she has locks. Yep. 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 <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I mean, people can't see me. I have locks. <laughs> so I was like, she has locks. Um, and that just, I was like, there's a woman with dreadlocks <laughs> in, in St. George's Chapel in Windsor. <laughs> um, and a nose ring, and then it just yep. kept going. You know, then there was Bishop Curry preaching, and then there was this gospel choir, and then there was this cellist that came on, um, and then it was her, uh, the, the Queen's chaplain. And for me, it was like, this is the most melanin this chapel has <laughs> ever seen in its entire existence. For me, as a as a as a black person, as a person of color, as someone who grew up in the Church of England, um, in a colony, uh, one of the British colonies, it was so refreshing, quite frankly, to see how uncomfortable the royals were with all of that was happening around them. I was like, yes, now you know <laughs> how uncomfortable it is for us. of the time. It it was for me just a a triumph, quite frankly, um, for people of color, um, people of African descent to be such, to have such important roles in that ceremony. Yeah. So for me, I I think uh, at least when we use the generational labels to talk about cultural things what we're usually talking about is white middle class right um because you know i'm the son of immigrants uh who came from mexico in the 50s and i was raised in the midwest and you know i was 16 17 or whatever when the breakfast club and all that stuff came out so that's sort of my demographic time the john hughes movies but i i didn't i didn't relate to that it's like that must be some high school that i don't go to um (laughs) 
I, I could relate to some of the stuff, like the interaction, like there's the jock and there's the you know princess or whatever it was. It's more than a broad brushstroke. I think it's actually a defining thing that actually leaves out the larger portion of the population. You know, we've been talking about representation a lot this season, especially with like Black Panther and stuff like that coming right. out recently. Right. And it's like, was it repre- was it representative of something you know in you, or was it just speaking? Was it just a feeling or well, the, something? The, for me, at least, the challenge of developing gay identity is there. There were when I was growing up, there were no cultural uh, touchstones. There was no shared vocabulary about what any of this was. There was no way of, of, of talking about what my desire was. Um, and for straight people, that's just not the case because everything is geared towards straightness. So we, as gay people, have to create our own social vocabulary to explain what our experience is. Because mm-hmm. if you're in love with your best friend in high school... And there's no category Check. for that, right? <laughs> there's no category for that. Then you feel yeah. like you're just a freak. The hate you give is, uh, is is the first part of the phrase that I think that Tupac Shakir, as she mentions in, in the book, uh, talked about thug life. I guess it was tattooed on his belly. Mm-hmm. Thug life stands for, it's an acronym for the hate you give little infants Fs everybody. How you treat these children and how little affection or attention or how you neglect them comes back to haunt the whole society. We continue the synergy, though. That is on my Audible wish list. So what? I have listened to the sample of that book. It has come up in my feed. So I can actually see that book from where I'm sitting on my bookshelf. Book club! I think actually the piece of media that I consumed... It was the ta Coates book that just blew it open. Between the World and Me, the listeners of the show know that, you know, when I say that I read The Hate You Give this summer, I listen to The Hate You Give because I love audiobooks. And I just, because right. I'm, I, also, I just love hearing stories told in a voice. And he reads it. And it and, and it's short enough that, like, I kind of consumed it, binged it essentially on a road trip. The element of my body is not my own. And the world communicates to me that I can do anything to your body whenever I want to. <laughs> yeah. And that, that is what has stuck with me. It is what has led me in different directions biblically. When I look at the Jesus message and who he was talking to and the people who felt the same way, you know, your body is not your own mm-hmm. and I'm a Roman soldier and I can do whatever I want to to you, mm-hmm. you know, and you can do these little resistance things you know mm-hmm. oh oh, you want me to carry your pack I'll carry your pack for a mile I'll carry it for another mile too and then you'll get chewed out by your officer you know or you know you want to tax me for everything I have well tax me for the cloak off my back because it's more culturally embarrassing for you to see me naked than for me to be naked in front of you like those Walter Wink, the powers that be, like it took me right mm-hmm. back into that. There was a part of me that connected to some of that as a woman. Mm-hmm. And and the messages that I get that my body really that but I'm I'm protected 
somewhat by the collar I wear or the, you know, my outer candy coating shell, my whiteness and, and, uh, and to really have him just plain and lay it out for me. And I was like, I understand that. And that is terrifying. You know, I was just explaining to kids because it was a part of this retreat. We did a healing service, right? So that sort of bodily activity, really talking to the kids about the ancientness of oil and and, you know, I love that psalm, you know, when oil runs upon the beard, like it's just, mm-hmm. I love it. But, you know, that sort of when, you know, you're anointing someone's hands and their head and praying for them. And I don't know. It's just it's cool. It's cool. Um, right. A lot of this stuff is totally ancient and has, mm-hmm. you know, religious and spiritual roots for sure. Um, and that's true about fasting. You know, I guess that that is part of what my concern is. Yes. Is that, I, I actually believe that our bodies are very resilient and that they don't require a lot of messing around with. And I think that our bodies come in different sizes. So when something like fasting, for example, which has like ancient spiritual roots, it can be good for you in all kinds of ways, is used basically as a Diet weight loss tool. technique. Yeah. yeah. But it's masquerading as something else. That that's the part that just makes me feel really part of this. I think that there's a spiritual dimension to all of these body improvement. I mean, I'm and improvements totally in air quotes. And I think part of it is like a restlessness about our ability to recognize that we are beloved and beautiful exactly the way we are. And another part is a resistance to our own mortality. Part of the reason I think everybody has to find really healing, accepting, beautiful communities is because it will drive you crazy if you're just trolling on social media or, you know, learning to swipe left for your news. It can get really angst-ridden and depressing pretty quickly. I think I would die if I thought that was the only news in the world. And Mm -hmm. so what I've tried to be about is saying, like, really the movement, the Me Too movement is not a hashtag on social media. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, but that is not what a movement is. If you look at the history culturally about what movements are, I mean, it requires a lot more of of us Mm -hmm. than just hashtagging. It's really, to me, you know, finding communities that are good news communities that are lifting up women and celebrating women and worrying about their economic independence and then helping make that news. You know, Mm -hmm. I keep thinking like along, you know, there's a whole life after the Me Too movement, you Mm -hmm. know, and that life after Me Too has to be where we are supporting and holding up women in new ways, not just sympathizing with them, but really like, not hate the word empower. I'm going to say love, loving women. And there's a lot of ways to do it. Like with, with your kids, Betsy, in in the high school, like saying, I want to make sure they have every opportunity and really lift them up and saying, how, you know, how can I listen? How can I be there for them? And then in the chapels, bringing that up and in the business spaces. I mean, that's why we got into the marketplace at Thistle Farms. That's why we have 27 global partners now it's like we gotta we have to make a stand for women who really don't have a fair shake which keeps them subject to the violence and vulnerability of poverty 
um, this idea that if you're in sort of celebrity jail for a little while, or if you show contrition, or if you do something, if you have like the perfect celebrity apology or something like that, somehow things um, go your way again. Like uh, and I'm, Paula Dean jail. Paula Dean jail. Mel Gibson jail. Yeah. Right? Louis Mel C. Gibson K. just had a hit movie. In, Louis C.K. is in celebrity jail. Right. So Hugh Mel Grant. Gibson. Hugh Grant. Just had a hit movie a month ago. And that's coming on the heels of anti-Semitic comments, anti-women comments, like awful stuff. Awful Mel Gibson stuff. had a hit movie a month ago. Daddy's Home 2. I think that's what it was. Something. The podcast <laughs> can't. The, the, our listening audience can't see my face right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did, Liz. You were not opening night. Daddy's home too. I'm sorry. Was, you weren't in line. I didn't see you in line at Daddy's home too. I thought that was you, Liz. I was looking uh, back. <laughs> no. As long as it's still in theaters, you can go during Lent. So I'll check. <laughs> in Omaha. <laughs> I just gotta say, Please. Daddy's Home 2 is a great movie title. <laughs> no. Oh. How long have you been recording? And we're already this square. I could never be what I want. So, Dostoevsky once said, It is not as a child that I believe and confess Jesus Christ. My Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. I love that because that's what I was. That's who I was prior to seminary. I, I was dragged into seminary kicking and screaming because I did not. It's like, I can't do this. I have a lot of doubts and I'm selfish. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, what is this about? And yet it's through the doubts. And this, I believe strongly. And I have, I guess, had this as a creed. Having doubts and questioning and grappling with is to my mind a, a real an indicator of faith. I had a friend I was visiting in New York City once, and uh, she's was raised Jewish, but I don't think she's not really. She doesn't believe in in God. And I was going on, it's like I don't know if I should be a priest. I'm on seminary. They tell me I should. It's terrible. I don't know. I can't do it. La la la. And she looked at me and she said, "God, the fact that you're even caring about it says something." You know, she's like, "I don't even think about that stuff." You know. I don't believe in God, but yet here you are grappling with your faith. So I love that Dostoevsky, his Hosanna is born of a furnace of doubt. So there's a Hosanna in there, but it's in this grappling and this struggle. So often those quotes at the end of people's emails uh, come off as schmaltzy to me. And I'm like, I kind of hate you because of your quote at the end of your email. (laughs) But I would like that quote. If I saw that, I'd be like, oh, what an interesting person. (laughs) (laughs) Would you? Would you? I don't know. (laughs) It's just just every time it's a little intense, right? Hey, okay, I'll see you at the mall at 530. It is not as a child (laughs) as I can Wrestlers used to have this thing called the wrestler handshake. And uh, what it meant was that when you went to shake, if you were a wrestler and you went to shake another wrestler's hand, you would shake it as softly as possible. So you wouldn't do like the firm masculine, like squeeze the hand grip. You would be as soft as possible. Like you would almost like, like a dead fish kind of handshake. And what that signaled to the other wrestler is that if you were ever in a match together, you would take care of him. Mm. You wouldn't Uh. injure him. You wouldn't hurt him. You would take care of him. And 
like, I think that there's something to that. I think that there's, you know, just being in that vulnerability, being in that vulnerable place and knowing that you have other people in that vulnerable place with you, you know, you want to, you want to, you want to say what the gospel is leading you to say, but you also want everybody to be okay at the end right. of it all. You know, well, so. and that pre that wrestler's handshake preaches because, like, I, I was just going to say that, that, yeah, <laughs> because it's an agreement. Right, his next sermon is written. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> a handshake is an agreement. It's a kind of covenant, and when we're in Christian community with other people, that whatever role we're playing in that community, we're making an agreement that we will care for one another. Can we, can we agree at general convention? It's only soft handshakes. Like <laughs> I will, I will soft You can find Popping Collars on the web at poppingcollarspodcast.com. You can find us on all the social media platforms. Just type in Popping Collars in the search bar. And, of course, you can get our podcast in all the usual podcasting apps. Finally, you can find our show and lots of wonderful Episcopal podcasts on episcopalcafe.com. We love episcopalcafe.com. We know you will as well. Check them out for all your Episcopal news needs and beyond and with that that is popping collars for season four we're going to take ourselves a little break we will see you on the other side in the meantime keep those collars popped